Good morning. You all look bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, ready for a good uh, study of the Word of God. And it was great worship. Amen. I, I love the songs we sang on the last one. I, I wish we had lifted the rafters in this place. They're hidden behind the, uh, the uh, drywall and the ceiling, but I'm telling you, uh, there's no greater song than to think and consider the greatness of our God and His faithfulness to us. Amen? Amen. He really is. Through all of the stuff we've been through the last few months, folks, I'm going to tell you something. There is nothing like knowing you can turn to the one true living God who never fails, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, who within him there's no shadow of turning, there is no variance. He is a constant in life. Give COVID or no COVID, whatever the situation may be, we have God we can trust. Amen? And we ought to live that way. We ought to live that way, believing that we have a God who can conquer anything and everything, and we belong to him. I love the gospel of Matthew, and the reason we're going to be studying Matthew is because it is the gospel about the king, Jesus Christ. I know some of you think Elvis is king. I'm telling you, he has nothing on Jesus, okay? It's the, it's the, it's the gospel of the true king, and it's a gospel about the kingdom of heaven, 27 times Matthew mentions the kingdom of heaven. By the way, not a, not a single gospel other than Matthew speaks the phrase kingdom of heaven. Others will say the kingdom of God and other, uh, other paraphrase words, but Matthew just nails it. His whole focus is to let you and I know that there is a Messiah who has come and he will come again and he will establish his kingdom. But you don't have to wait until you die to go to kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is within you, right here, right now, in the midst of our trials. And you'll find it in the righteousness, the peace, and the joy of the Holy Spirit that reigns inside your heart. Amen? And so we have it now. So I, you better be ready to do some amening today. And, 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 and we're not going to actually get into chapter one, believe it or not. We're going to hold off. Here, here's the plan. So today is an introduction. I just want to give you a background, a backdrop of Matthew's gospel. And, and then we'll go right into next weekend. This is, I'm excited about this. In the middle of all the stuff that the world's dealing with and everybody can get depressed over it and whatever, we're going to come to church next Sunday morning and we're going to have a whole service of nothing but worship of God by song. There's not going to be a sermon next week. There'll be scripture readings and things like that, corporate responses, but there's going to, we're going to just focus on worshiping God, the King. Amen? That's next week. The following week, we will be meeting over at Storm Grove Middle School. We go back to the school that we know quite well, and we'll be there uh, from there on until the Lord opens a door and buys us a piece of property. And... Uh, We've got a facilities team that's working on that. They're looking at different properties around town and facilities, and, and in God's good timing, we'll get that. That's not an issue. But for the time being, we'll be at Stormgrove in two weeks, and that's when we'll start chapter one, okay? So just giving you a little bit of a heads up what's happening in the next couple weeks. Well, let's begin with prayer. Father, there's nothing like coming into the presence of 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 you, but also with, coming with your body. I'm so thankful today, Lord, to belong to the body of Jesus Christ, and especially to this local fellowship, Vero Bible Fellowship. 
And I pray that today those who are watching by live stream would find the same sense of completeness and wholeness in you. They may not be able to experience in a physical sense what it is to be with the body of Christ this morning, but may they experience your presence where they are right now, whether it's in a hospital room, whether it's at work, whether it is uh, at their home. I pray, Lord, that you would have bring peace to them, righteousness and joy. And Lord, today as we open the Word of God, I pray that we would be enlightened, inspired, that the Scripture would illuminate our hearts and something would happen inside of us. It, we would be triggered into a desire, a hunger, a thirst to not only know you and live for you, but to reach others for you. I pray that this would happen in Jesus' name. So now, Lord, open the Word with the intent of making it applicable to our lives. May we live what we learn, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, Matthew is 28 chapters, so we're going to break it up in sections. We won't read, we won't do verse by verse 28 chapters. It would probably take us over a year to cover Matthew, so we'll, we'll section it. And then we'll have little times where we have maybe a two-part, three-part series on something else or a topical sermon dealing with a matter that uh, God leads us to deal with between these sections. But we're going to cover the whole Gospel of Matthew. Now, at the time, what about Matthew? Today, again, I just want to lay the backdrop. I want you to understand the context of the text of the Gospel of Matthew. So at the time when Christ was born, Israel was under Roman occupation, okay? There was, a better way to say it, Roman domination, okay? And there were many things about the Roman occupation that were oppressive to Israel. One aspect of the oppression of Rome was the suffocating, cruel taxation system that Rome put upon the Jews. As with all nations that Rome conquers at that time, they would exact uh, a tariff, they would exact taxes from their victims. And two particular taxes were taken in that day. This is just prior to the ministry of Christ starting, and it happened through his ministry, and even after his ministry, it got worse, okay? But there were two taxes in particular. There was the poll tax, which would be comparable today to our income tax. And then there was also a second tax, the ground tax, which would be kind of like our property tax, okay? The Roman senators back in Rome, they had these uh, uh, organizations that they would build with very wealthy people. And the way Rome set up the exacting of the taxes on any nation that they occupied was this way, okay? These senators in Rome had a way of of raising up these wealthy Roman citizens, and they would actually allow them to bid on the rights of the taxation of the nation they had conquered. So literally, in Rome, the senators would gather their consortium of wealthy people, and they would bid to have the rights for a five-year period to go to Israel and exact however much they could possibly exact over that five years. And then somebody else would have a chance to bid, and maybe somebody new would get, would get the opportunity. And so that's the system 
that the Jews were under. There was a reason why they despised the Romans. They hated the Romans. And what's interesting is uh, this coalition of wealthy senators, would they would buy the rights and then they would use what are called in the Bible publicans or tax collectors who are actually countrymen of the country they had conquered who would do the exacting. And so you had tax collectors and publicans who were Jewish who were actually going and getting the taxes from all the the Jewish people. The Jewish people hated them. They despised them. You put the tax collectors and the publicans in the same camp as murderers, thieves, uh, prostitutes. Uh, These were the lowest of the low according to the Jewish people. Why? Because you're working, you're a Benedict Arnold, you're working for Rome and you're, just, you're coming after us trying to get all you possibly can. Now why would they be so uh, energetic in their effort to take the taxes from their own people? Because they too could line their pockets. Not only are they taking the funds for Rome, but they're also lining their own pockets. Remember the story of Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector. When Jesus confronted him, Uh, he was so moved that he actually said to Jesus, I'm going to give back fourfold what I have defrauded from other people. So he was a criminal. He was a crook. And so many of the tax collectors and publicans were. Not all of them. I mean, it's like in any line of work or any business, uh, not all attorneys are bad attorneys. I, I know some of you have a hard time believing that. Let me take it a step further. Not all pastors are bad pastors. I know some of you are struggling with that one as well. There there can be some good guys that work in a bad company of people. And I believe, interestingly enough, that this is the person that Jesus goes after to make one of his 12 disciples. Only 12 men on the face of the earth had an opportunity to walk next to Jesus Christ while he was in his earthly ministry. And one of them was a publican a tax collector, and his name was Matthew Levi. This book that we're studying is the gospel of Jesus Christ according and to the recorded uh, words of Matthew. He wrote down what he heard, what he saw. He was a tax collector. I just find that interesting. Now, to make matters worse, as we think about the setting of the Jews who are now angry and hostile towards the Romans who are occupying their land and taxing them so heavily. On top of that, Rome is in a period of time where they are in a financial crisis in Rome. So how, what's, what are the ways that Rome handles that? Well, one of the ways is to go to all the occupied territories and exact even greater taxes. So you can imagine the hostility, the anger, the frustration of the Jews in this setting. This is when God sends his son to come to this earth. This is the climate. This is the arena that God the Father put Jesus the Son in in order to proclaim that he is the king, he is the Messiah, and he has a kingdom unlike any kingdom of this earth. And the Jews were looking for a Messiah. Don't think they weren't. They were. But the Messiah they were looking for was one that met their own personal, selfish needs, not God the Father's desires. 
And so they were looking for a Messiah who would come and fight against the Roman occupation. We want a Messiah who will release us from this heavy taxation and get these stinking Romans out of here. And of course, Jesus comes and John the Baptist proclaims him as he is the Messiah. John the Baptist was the last of the prophets. Even though he's in the New Testament, he's one of the Old Testament prophets. And he's proclaiming Christ. Well, let me tell you how popular that message was. They, they chopped John the Baptist's head off. Nobody wanted a Messiah who was talking in spiritual terms. Nobody wanted a Messiah who was simply going to focus on the heart and the issues of the heart and set up a kingdom in the heart of man. They wanted external results. Does that not sound familiar in our day that we live in, that the world wants physical results? And so we see all this nonsense, this havoc, this chaos and confusion and destruction going on as people with selfish desires are seeking for answers and going about it in whatever way they can get it. So they want somebody to rule who's as wicked as they are. And then you have God who's saying, wait a minute, the kingdom of heaven is in you. It's righteousness, peace, and joy. Christian, do you know that right now, today, Jesus Christ is king? Did you know he has a kingdom inside of every believer that they can live in in spite of all the nonsense going on? And yet we see so many Christians today who are being driven and led by their sensuality, by the desires of their selfish hearts, they want things on the outside as if getting what you want on the outside of you will bring peace on the inside of you, and there's no way that'll ever happen. Don't get me wrong, I'm not against stuff. The reality is that uh, God's the one who gives us stuff. God gives us the resource we need to live. God provides things for us. He takes joy in blessing us. But nowhere in Scripture does the Bible teach that the stuff should ever come into our hearts. There's a throne room in your heart, and it is set up for one and one only, and that is Jesus Christ to rule. For you to never forget that you are not a citizen of this world you are alien, the Scripture says, to this world. Your kingdom comes through Christ. And only God sits on the throne of your heart. Stuff is supposed to stay outside of you where it belongs. Never come into your heart. Well, the Jews are experiencing the same thing. The Pharisees, the Jews, they wanted external results. They didn't want an internal king who could change them from the inside out. That's the backdrop. And now I want you to take your Bible and I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. The reason we're going to start here is because this is the only place in the entire Gospel of Matthew that we get any, any insight into the character of this man, Matthew. He's the writer of the Gospel. 
And you have to actually go into Matthew chapter 9 where Jesus actually approaches Matthew and calls him to be a disciple. Matthew, this tells you a little bit about his character. Now remember now, he's a tax collector. He's a publican. Yet this particular tax collector doesn't mention his own name one single time in his entire gospel except to record when Jesus approached him. And when he does that, he doesn't speak of himself. Well, here Jesus came to me and blah, 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 and I and, and you. Jesus, he, he tells the story in the third person. Because it's not about him, it's about Christ. And so in Matthew chapter 9, it says in verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now this is the first time that we meet Matthew, the tax collector. What is amazing is that Jesus would have, wouldn't, that he would even have anything to do with a tax collector. Because the Jews hated him. And here Jesus is walking right up to this guy. Okay? They saw him as the scum of the earth, the low life, and Jesus said, I don't care what they say about you. He walks up to him. This was a publican, a man who was known in his society as the least of all the general designations that they would give in the Jewish kingdom. And he says, follow me. And equally surprising that Jesus would approach this guy and say, follow me, is this guy, the tax collector, who, by the way, is somewhat wealthy. If you were a tax collector, you had money. And this guy would walk away from his wealth. He walked away from the external stuff. He walked away from the M&Ms. How many of you like M&Ms? I used to love them growing up. Now they're too sweet for me. I don't know what it is, but M&Ms. That's no, not the M&Ms. I'm, I'm talking about money and material things. He walked away from it to follow Jesus. Now, only Jesus could possibly transform such a man as Matthew, who's hated by the people, who's a tax collector. We don't know if Matthew was evil in the way he excised taxes or not. We don't know. Uh, I don't believe he was. I think that the text we're going to read kind of insinuates that he was not like the others. But they are his friends, the bad company, the murderers, the thieves, the prostitutes. They're his friends. We're going to see that in the text. And Jesus has an impact on him to the degree that he leaves crime and goes to Christ. Here's a man who was known as a lowlife. Jesus says, I embrace all kinds of people. I don't care what color you are. I don't care what your echo social status is. Who cares about all that nonsense? I'm telling you right now, come as you are. Jesus will minister. Jesus wants people in his kingdom, and it's not built on the status of the things that we build kingdoms with. Amen? Let's shift for a moment. We're going to come back to Matthew in just a second, but let's shift because this is more of a teaching moment. I want you to understand a little more uh, about the, the backdrop to the Gospels, plural. There's four Gospels, okay? So let me, let me talk to you about this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I like the father who, his daughter was going on her first date. Scotty, take notes of this. My, my granddaughter one day will be there. 
Um, my, so he's my son-in-law. I'm just telling him, you better pay attention to this. Okay, so, so this father, his daughter's going on her first date. So the guy comes to the door, picks her up. They walk out, get in the car, and the father follows them out. And as, as, as they get ready to pull out, she rolls the window down on her side, and her father takes a Bible, and he says, now, hang on a second. And he sets the Bible in between them on the car seat. He said, son, if you feel good about crawling over Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you go, go, go right ahead and try. <laughs> That's not a bad line, is it? That's not a bad line at all. Each of these four Gospels is written with unique purposes. Three of the four are very similar. That's why they're called the synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They follow the life of Christ in a very similar way. But even the three synoptics have different purposes God the Father knew what he was doing when he gave inspiration to these four men to write these four Gospels. Let me give you the breakdown quickly. If you want to write these down in your little note guide, you, you can do this. Let me give you the difference between the four Gospels so you have it. Now it makes sense to you. And now you'll understand where we're going in Matthew. Okay, Matthew, his Gospel was writing, he wrote to a Hebrew audience. He's writing more targeted towards the Jews. The purpose of his gospel was to show from Jesus' genealogy and from the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Matthew brings more Old Testament scripture into his gospel than the other three do. He's trying to show and prove that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah and he should be received by the Jews. Now, you got to receive him by faith. But that's what Matthew is about. That's what he's up to. Matthew's emphasis is that Jesus is the promised king, the son of David, who would forever sit on the throne of Israel. So he's appealing to the Jews to recognize through the Old Testament, the Messiah is coming. I'm telling you, he's here now. His name is Jesus. He is the king. He is the king. That's Matthew. Mark's gospel is a cousin of Mark is a cousin of Barnabas and he was an eyewitness to the events in the life of Christ as well as being a friend to the apostle Peter. Mark wrote to a gentile audience. So you had the Jews and you had the Gentiles. You had the Jews and you had everybody else. So you and I if we don't have if we're not Jewish by blood, we're everybody else. We're the mutts. And and we're the Gentiles. Mark wrote to the Gentiles, okay? He wrote, uh, his purpose of writing is to emphasize Christ as the suffering servant. Jesus did not come into this world to be served. He came to serve, right? He gave his life as a ransom for who? Not just the Jews. He gave his life for a ransom for us. Amen. We know this because he doesn't take the time to include the things that would be important to the Jewish readers. He doesn't really cover the Jewish analogies and things of that nature. He comes straight after the Gentile. Luke's gospel, and Luke was the beloved physician, right? 
He was an evangelist, a companion of the Apostle Paul. He wrote both the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. Luke is the only Gentile author of the New Testament. All the other authors in the New Testament were Jewish, but not, not Luke. Luke, as a master historian, not only was he a physician, so that meant he wrote very, very meticulously, he wrote with great detail, but he was also a master historian. And because of that, he wrote everything down in a very orderly fashion. He didn't leave any points of history out, okay? Uh, interestingly, he specifically wrote for the benefit of Theophilus, who apparently was some kind of a Gentile with great stature. This gospel was composed with a Gentile audience in mind, and his intent is to show that a Christian's faith is based upon historically reliable, verifiable facts of events. Luke often refers to Christ as the Son of Man because he wanted to emphasize the humanity of Christ. And he shares many details that are not found in the other three gospel accounts. That's Luke. He's a Gentile. He also writes to the Gentiles. But he writes with specific, orderly details of events because he's a physician. He, gets, he understands how to do that, and he's a great historian. The last of the four Gospels is the Gospel of John. John is not one of the synoptic Gospels. Somebody says to you, uh, I was just reading through the synoptic Gospels. They were reading through Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They were not reading through John. Now, why would John be different? Here's why. Because the Apostle John uses a completely different approach he comes from the theological content regarding Jesus Christ, okay? Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are referred to as the synoptics because of their similarities. John, he writes, because he's tracking from a different course, that it doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter to him in his gospel what the birth of Christ was about, what the genealogy, genealogy of Jesus proves. None of that matters to him. All he wants you to know is he wants you to know that this is the son of the living God, and he became a man, and he goes in depth in the theology of the incarnation of Christ. The Gospel of John emphasizes the deity of Jesus Christ, as is seen in, his, in the use of such phrases as the word was God, the savior of the world, the son of God. John's Gospel doesn't begin with Jesus' birth. John's Gospel begins with Jesus in heaven before he was born. John takes you on a theological trip, and it's awesome. So we'll probably get to the Gospel of John uh, at some point after we finish up Matthew. Now, you can always find something in all four of these Gospels that will speak to you because the Spirit of God inspired these men to write it. So these are all four Gospels are living words. These are living words. These words have power and meaning, and God will use it in your life if you'll allow him. I love what John said at the close of his gospel. He said, before Abraham was, he recorded this, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. 
John's Gospel spells out his overall purpose for writing. He said, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So all four Gospels serve a purpose. Now let's go back to Matthew's Gospel, and let's go back to Matthew the tax collector. Again, I don't... There's nothing in the text that says that he was a cruel, harsh tax collector. He probably was a good guy. He was just lost in sin. He was probably like a lot of people today who just live for M&Ms. That's what life's about. And that was probably him. The fact that he immediately followed Jesus causes you to wonder if he already was familiar with the ministry of Jesus. Maybe he had heard him speak somewhere. Maybe he observed some of the ministry that Jesus had with the, those who were called sinners, the low lowlifes of that day. Whatever it was, he didn't even hesitate to leave his tax booth. He just got up and walked with Christ. We don't get from Scripture any sense about him that he was like a Zacchaeus. What we do get is that Matthew is very unique. Matthew is an interesting character. Verse 10, go back, if you will, to chapter 9, verse 10 of Matthew's Gospel. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, remember now what just happened in verse 9, he went up to Matthew, he said, follow me, and Matthew stood right up and walked away from everything he had. Walked away from the wealth, walked away from the status of being able to buy things, do things that other people couldn't do. He walks away from it, and he follows Jesus. Verse 10, and as Jesus reclined at table in the house, in, in what house? In Matthew's house. Matthew has now followed him. He takes him to his house. And I want you to notice this. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Why, why, were, there, um, why were there many tax collectors and sinners? Because that's who Matthew hung out with. So his friends show up at the house. He invites them to come. Interesting. He just walked away from everything. Following Jesus, the first thing he does is invites his lost friends to come and see Jesus. Inside of that might be a hint or a clue as to what we as Christians ought to be doing. And verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So now it turns to Jesus in the story. It's a focus on Jesus, not Matthew. And why is Jesus doing this? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick go and learn what this means. Here it is. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. It's worth noting that Matthew, after being called by Christ to follow him, throws a party and invites lost people, and now they're there with Jesus, and Jesus is perfectly comfortable with lost people. Well, I'm going to go back through this text. Look what it says. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, which was a very sarcastic way of saying, you can't hang with me because you think you're holy. You think you've got it all together. You're like Christians in the 21st century who only hang out with Christians. You think you're better than everybody else. In verse 13 of the text, go and learn what this means. Jesus is counting, he's now going to challenge them. He says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, and what he's really saying is like you, sarcastically, I didn't come to call you righteous people, I came to call sinners to repentance. A righteous man doesn't need to repent. A man who thinks he's righteous and isn't, won't repent. Is it possible that as Christians we find ourselves every day hanging out with just a bunch of other Christians? <clears throat> when our Savior gives us right here the model to follow, this is the pattern of a Christian. You go among lost people and you love them where they are, the way they smell, the way they look, the words that come out of their mouth that you can't stand. You love them. And in loving them, Others begin to notice there's something different. It always interests me how sinners were, more, were so comfortable around Jesus. I'm sometimes concerned because I find that we get too comfortable around religious people. But sinners, we're not comfortable around them. More importantly, they're not comfortable around us. Because they think they're going to get preached at. They think they're going to get you know, leveled did Jesus level these people? Did Jesus come at them hard and heavy? He met them where they are in life. He didn't meet them there to keep them there. He met them there because that's where they were. He just met them where they were at. And then little by little, he had an impact on them. And many of them were saved. We need to pray about spending a little more time with people who don't know the Lord. We need to pray about sharing with them the things that we've learned as we've walked with Christ. And we need to share with them, listen, as if they're saved. Now, I'm not into faking it. I'm not into assuming that somebody who just goes to church is saved. And I don't want to put them on boards and committees if they're not saved. But I'll tell you what I am into, that we would reconcile the world, we would treat the world as if they're already reconciled. In other words, treat them the way God would treat them if they're saved. Go ahead and treat them that way now. Go ahead and talk about Jesus. Talk about the Bible. Talk about kingdom realities. Talk about principles of truth that we find in Scripture with the lost person. Don't be condescending. Don't look down like, oh, you wouldn't understand what I'm talking about. Use the word propitiation. You just say, oh, Pastor, I don't even know what a propitiation means myself. Well, then you've got some growing to do. Amen. But go ahead and speak to them about Bible things. Don't preach at them. Just talk to them. And all of a sudden, those who are being drawn by the Holy Spirit of God, unless the Spirit draws, no man can come to the Father. Those who are being drawn, now they're learning from you. You don't have to treat them different. Treat them like real human beings. They're just as much made in the image of God as you. 
Every sinner. They'll be amazed if you treat them like that. Now, some will be angry, some will walk away, some will reject you, some will speak negatively about you to others. Jesus said, if that happens, you're blessed. Praise God, move on. Shake the dust off your feet. Whoop-dee-doo. Who cares? There's others that we can talk to. But they'll be amazed, I'm telling you. Let the Pharisees go ahead and sniff and, and let the scribes scoff, but you be like Matthew, a man who opened his heart and then he opened his home, and then Jesus began to reach his friends. After opening his home, Matthew also opened his hand. Matthew's a keeper of records by vocation. He knew how to write things. In fact, they said that a tax collector probably had his own form of shorthand. So he could write specific things in detail without writing out full sentences. He had his own form of shorthand. He was used to using his hand, interesting, and that was to do his vocational work, okay? And what's interesting here is that Jesus now takes the same hand and he uses them in another way. You're going to pen a gospel about me. That's just like our God, isn't it? It's only fitting that he would grab the pen and use it to keep a new important record of the teachings and deeds of Christ who now has become his hero and his friend and his leader. The Lord uses whatever is in our hands to do his work in ministry. This translates today to you and I. Listen, back in the day, Moses, what's in your hand? Well, all I have in my hand is a rod. Great, I'll take that instrument and turn it into an instrument of authority and purpose. He looks at uh, David, what's in your hand? A slingshot. Okay, take that slingshot, let's go slay Goliath. Peter, what's in your hand? A fishing net. Peter must have had a real issue with fishing, though, because every time you find Jesus approaching the men on the beach, they're mending their nets. I'm not sure he was a great fisherman, but anyway, that's what was in his hand, and Jesus says, great, I'll make you a fisher of men. A fisher of men. I think too often we wish we had other gifts, other skills, other trades, and we think, man, if I could just play the piano. Well, I was talk who was I talking to? I was talking to somebody yesterday about that. They said, you know, oh, I know it was Pete uh, Casera. Pete goes, man, I just wish growing up I'd have played an instrument. He says, man, I can't play a, a thing, and now I wish I could play an instrument. And I'm like, yeah, well, let me just tell you, that doesn't always pan out. Okay, I took six years of piano lessons. I can't play a stinking thing. Okay, so don't envy something that you're not called to do. Just take what's in your hand right now. Don't wish you had something else that somebody's got. Go ahead and just let God take what you have and let God begin to do something marvelous with it for his kingdom's sake. This is certainly what Matthew did. He made a huge sacrifice to leave everything he had by worldly standards, and he followed Jesus. He didn't walk away quietly. He made his intentions known by throwing a feast in hopes that some of his old friends might also follow Christ. I think Matthew was a modest man, too, I'll tell you. Never once in all the writings does he mention himself. He never makes it about himself. The Bible says, if I be lifted up on the cross, I will draw all men to me. 
the focus of a Christian is not to brag on you. It's to brag on Jesus. You lift Jesus up and he will do the drawing. People don't get saved because you're a cool person. They don't get saved because you talk well. They don't get saved because you think you're something. They get saved because you just simply share the gospel and let the gospel do it. They get saved because of God. Amen? So those of you who say, well, I just can't talk like you, Pastor Greg. I can't talk like a lot of preachers. It's okay. You don't need to be anybody but the person God made you to be. What's in your hand? Let God use you the way he's created you, wired you, the way he's purposed you. The reason we know that Matthew was such a good disciple is because he simply did whatever Christ asked him to do, and he brought his friends along with him. <laughs> what would happen to Bureau Bible Fellowship if we all left and did what Matthew did? Let's all throw parties in our homes, bring some lost people in, share the gospel of Jesus. Christ is in you. He's the hope of glory. He lives inside of you. The king is in you. Your friends are looking for a king right now. Oh, my goodness, are they looking for a king. It's election season. We need a new king or no, we need to keep the king we've got. Neither of those kings can give you the righteousness, peace, and joy of the Holy Spirit. That's not the answer. The answer is the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdoms of this earth. I'm not saying I'm against elections. I will vote and I'll vote according to the one that I think follows scripture the closest. I don't know that either one comes real close, but anyway... It's pretty obvious which ones seem to have a fear of the Lord and which ones don't. i got to be real careful because I got in trouble a few years ago. It was election season and it was uh, President Barack Obama who was running. I don't know if it was re-election or if it was the first time in, what was that, 2012? And uh, I forget who was running against him back then. But anyway, I... In my heart of hearts, I had no clue what came out of my mouth. I know why I said it, but what I said didn't come out the way I intended it. And what I said was, if you don't know the difference between these two candidates, which one follows a biblical pattern, I said, I'll be honest with you, it's a black and white issue. In other words, <laughs> in other words it's pretty obvious and I just kept right on going. There's people just giggling and whatever, just like you. And I came out of church feeling pretty good about the message, and somebody walked up and said, Greg, do you know what you said? I said, no, what did I say? And they told me what I said. And, oh, are you kidding me? But you know what? In today's society, they'll crucify you for that. Even when in your heart of hearts you had no intention of belittling anyone. That's a, we live in a different day. This is a day when Christians ought to be serious about lifting up the name of Jesus. If you're going to get accused of anything, be accused of standing for Christ. Be accused of turning the world upside down with the message of the gospel. All right, how are we doing on time? Does it really matter? Okay, let me just give you quickly, there's three main themes to the Gospel of Matthew. Let me give them to you quickly, okay? Then we're done. 
Number one, the first theme of, gospel, of Matthew's gospel, Christ is revealed as king. We've already said that. So the person of Jesus is painted in royal colors. His ancestry is traced from the royal line, and we'll see that in two weeks when we cover the genealogy of Christ, it's going to blow you away. Verses 1 through 17 of Matthew's gospel. It's incredible when we look at the genealogy of Christ. His birth is, is just covered in, 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 in all kinds of priestly royalty. He had a right to be king. And yet, in the day that he was born, there was a dreaded king who was his rival, King Herod. Wise men offer their royal gifts to, to Jesus the king. His, his herald, John the Baptist, declares the kingdom is at hand. Even his, in his temptation, you see the royalty of the person because the temptation itself is to give him what? The kingdoms of the world. Even Satan recognized him as a king. As he comes to the close of his ministry, he even makes a royal entry into Jerusalem. And while facing the cross, he predicted his future reign. He claimed to have dominion over the angels. He could have brought forth angels that would have actually taken him off the cross and would have taken care of his enemy. That's how much of a king he is. But he didn't choose to, go, to approach it that way. And while facing his death, and then even after his death, they lay him in a tomb, a borrowed tomb. But the reality is he was still the king because he rose again. No king can do that. This is the king. Secondly, not only is Jesus Christ revealed as king in Matthew's gospel, but the king is rejected. Even before he was born, his mother was in danger of being rejected by her, by her future husband, Joseph. At his birth, King Herod sought his life and had all the males killed, all because this king of heaven is greater than the king of the earth. He was hurried away to safety, and he spent 30 years of his life in obscurity. He was, he was rejected. A little place called Nazareth. Somebody once said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, he got it from every side. He was rejected by men. Even in his message with his parables, indicated, they indicated that his kingdom would not be accepted in this world. Jesus himself, the king, even said that the world hates me, therefore they're going to hate you. Don't be surprised if they hate you. It's because of me that they hate you. And in his death, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This king was rejected. There are no human words of, of, of sympathy shared in his death. Only a bunch of soldiers who were bartering for his clothing. Only the standerbys who would mock him and ridicule and laugh at him and spit upon him. This was a rejected king. From beginning to end, no other gospel captures the rejection and the pain of the king of heaven like Matthew's gospel. Thirdly, the last part, the king is returning. Praise the Lord. No other gospel lays the foundation of the second coming of Christ as Matthew's gospel does. This is the gospel of triumph. When you get to chapters 24 and 25, you read that he will come in the clouds with great glory and will ultimately reign forever and ever and ever. So which kingdom are you focused on? 
Are you focused on the kingdom of the Jews in the day that when Christ the Messiah showed up because he didn't fit inside their box? They rejected him. Does Christ fit in a box? Do you have your own idea, your own expectation for what Jesus needs to be in your life? I'm going to tell you something. You're wasting your time. You need to get on with the program. You need to get on the train. Jesus is the king, and the king came once, and he's coming again. And between the two comings, he's given you and I a purpose to reach this world for Christ and every day to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the mission of the king. He's given it to you. Are you living it? Are you living your life under the lordship of Christ? Have you made him your king? Does he sit on the throne of your heart, or have you let M&M slip in there? This is a call to the church through the Gospel of Matthew to let's get back to God, even in the day that we live in. Let's turn and go back to God. Let's repent of our sin. Let's allow Christ to use us for the days that we have left. Amen? Amen. I wish we, I'm telling you earlier when we sang about God's faithfulness, I, I felt like we needed to sing it louder. I felt like every believer in this room who has Jesus in their heart, we ought to sing with all of our heart and our might because he is our king. In fact, can we sing it? Or can we do that? We have everybody here? All right. Band, team, come on back up. I want us to close our time today. This, I, this, is, I'm just, this is different than what we had planned, but I just feel led of God that we would just remember who Jesus really is in our life. And let's just sing this song like we believe it, okay? Let's, let's give God everything as we sing, knowing that the King, Jesus Christ, rules and reigns right now in our hearts. Not in the future, he rules now. Let's sing it like we believe it.